and here we are. Corinne Lang, been on the program before, back on it. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be back. It is great to have you on one and a half years later. It's a different time, end of 2023. How cool is that? You are going to have some travels. You're an attorney. We'll get back to that. Your travels. You've gone somewhere. Let's find out if some growth or understanding or things were figured out or noticed along the way, which travels tend to do. Yeah, I went to a lot of places. I went to 11 countries in a year. Mm -hmm. I started in Guatemala. I did Guatemala, Costa Rica, Panama with my cousin. And then I did Colombia, a month and a half in Colombia by myself. I Three weeks in Brazil with my brother. We went there for Carnival. Crazy time. And then Paraguay, Uruguay, Argentina, Chile by myself. Peru with my brother and my nephews. We took them to Machu Picchu. We had a good time learning a lot of history. And then I ended in Ecuador, went to the Galapagos, came home. So I landed in Guatemala August 1st, 2022. And I left the Galapagos August 1st, 2023. So I kept it a year to the day. I came home a few times for some family things. Um, and I stayed home a lot longer because I had some more unexpected family things happen. Um, but yeah, all in all, I was traveling for a year. Um, in terms of growth, I, I went through a lot. I was stranded in places with no money. I had random Colombians and random Ecuadorians help me around. I lost or got my passport stolen. I was super sick at the Bolivian border. I couldn't get in. Um, a lot of crying, a lot of tears, but I always say like traveling is different than vacation. So like vacation, you're going to a resort, you're laying by the pool, you're reading a book, you're relaxing, you're scheduling a massage, which not to say I didn't have massages, I did, because uh, my body was broken from all the bus rides, but traveling is a lot of a lot more work than vacation. Of course, it's an amazing time, and of course, it's not like being an employee nine to five, but it is hard. There's long bus rides. You don't know anybody, especially traveling by yourself. Like you don't know anybody. Help is a thousand miles away. Um, so you're forced to learn a lot about yourself, about your capabilities, about what you're willing to go through for certain things. At some times, did you get used to being disconnected or there's not going to be resources for me ready to go? Did you start to get used to that at some point? 100%. And I prefer it maybe as masochistic as it sounds, um, you, most of the time when things went wrong, it was when I was in groups. So like oh. I would meet a group that was traveling all together and they're like, oh my gosh, how do you travel by yourself? And then I'm so used to organizing everything. So then when I'm in a big group of people, it's like, okay, someone, someone's going to take care of it. Someone is doing it, but nobody does it because everybody has that mindset. So I ended up being the person that was planning things or I relied on people and then things went wrong. Whereas if I was by myself, those things wouldn't have happened because I wouldn't have relied on anybody and I would have just known that I'm taking care of everything. So it was interesting when people would ask, 
how do you travel by yourself? Like you're, you're just by yourself and how do you know where to go and how do you organize things and how do you plan things? Whereas I'm looking at this group of 10 being like, how do you travel with 10 people? Like, how do you sit down for a restaurant? If you're late to a bus, it's easier for me to buy a last minute ticket, run down to the bus station and get on that bus and get one seat for myself. For 10 people, that's not the same situation. So I prefer traveling by myself. And like you meet people along the way, you're never really by yourself. And I explain that to people all the time. They're like, don't you get lonely? And it's like, you have to put in effort to stay alone because I'm in and out of hostels and there's bars at the hostels and um, I'm staying in rooms with people. So everybody's really nice and they're mostly on the same vibe. So I, if I was hungry, when I checked into my room and there were people there, I'd be like, have you guys eaten yet? Do you wanna go? And then that turns into a full day road trip the next day. And that turns into meeting up later on in a different part of the country because you see that you're there at the same time. Um, so that's kind of, it's just a continuous go with the flow, see who you meet, see where you go kind of situation. You have to stay on way more. And that group thing is like in schools when there's a group project, people are less likely to put in effort because oh, somebody's gonna take care of it. But when you're by yourself, you're the person who has to take care of it, there's no choice. That group thing, same thing with the bystander effect, when there's something bad happening, if there's 20 people, there's less likely that one of them's gonna jump in to help because they think, oh, somebody else will take care of it. I jump in to help regardless, but yeah. You'll do that. <laughs> but that's my personality, like the solo. That's a good quality. Just take care of it, yeah. That's the thing we look for. Everybody would hope that people would, if 10 people all were jumping in to help at those times, we'd look differently at humanity. We'd say, oh, people are always ready to go and do the thing and send the thing. But usually it's more like, not on me. Somebody else? No, no. I'm the last one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you stayed on more. So you got used to staying on basically yeah. the whole time. I was on at all times unless I was with a group. Then I got a little comfortable and then mistakes would be made. And then I would just get upset at myself. You know, it's not their fault because they obviously didn't do anything. Um, but yeah, traveling by myself, kind of like connecting with groups for the moment or for a couple of days and then moving on is my style. And it's scary and kind of foreign to a lot of people. Like a lot of people are like, oh, I could never do that. Um, but I disagree. I think she disagrees. I think everybody can do it. Whether you want to do it is a different thing. Whether you can do it is you're capable because we individually go through school. We individually go through work. We individually get on the initial plane, you know? And so why is it different to continue the traveling by yourself? It's just you're, you're afraid to be alone, which that's fine. But I want people to know that they can do it because the first time that I did solo, solo travel just by myself, it was out of necessity because... I was studying abroad and I planned to travel after uh, with some friends that I met during my studies. And um, we were in Italy and they wanted to go from Italy to Ireland and then to Greece, which didn't make sense to me. And I also didn't have a desire to go to Ireland in that moment. It was like summer, I wanted to go to beaches or like nice cities, um, whereas Ireland I think is more natural beauty. But anyways, the point is 
they were set on that plan. And so I was either faced with go along with their plan, which I thought was not smart and expensive for no reason, go home because I had no one to travel with or travel by myself. And so I called my mom like one normally does. And she's like, you got this, like you're good. And um, support. Yeah, super supportive. Um, and the funny thing is that I actually f missed my first flight by myself. And so I called my mom crying, being like, I can't do this. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I'm by myself, like I can't. And she kind of just talked to me. She was like, relax, it's okay. It's just a flight, you know, like there are dozens more. Is there a train to where you're going? Like, can you maybe change course and then go some? And I kind of just like got my stuff, like got my shit together and I was like, okay, it's not the end of the world. There will be another flight is a good message for yeah. life. And I think that happening immediately, like the first thing that happened when I was by myself was really good because it taught me like, even if things go wrong, it's fine. You know, it's not better or worse when you're with other people. And sometimes when you're with other people, they stress out and stress you out and it's even worse. And then it is like the end of the world. Um, and other times they can come for you. So I just want people to know that they can do it if they want to do it. Like you should do it. Everybody should do it at least a little. You don't have to go to South America, Central and South America for a year, but you should take a little bit of time and see the world by yourself because you'll see a lot more. There is something to that there. You should do it and you can't do it on your own. It's a nice message. The plane, there's another plane. Life always has another plane. It's not the last one. The Titanic is not the only one going. There's another one. It's a good message. Slightly returning to I the... I mean, Titanic is a bad example. Yeah, a bad example. A horrible but example. But it's the first ship I thought of. Ugh. Some other ship. Yeah. But it was a ship. Yeah. There's, there's other ships too. Good examples out here. I got good examples. Yeah. My analogy sometimes. <gasps> the alone concept you brought up, right? Mm -hmm. Can most people be okay on their own? Do people have difficulty being alone in the first place? I think people have different levels of difficulty. Whether it's possible i say yes um but i understand that more people would have more difficulty believing that it would be okay like we talked about last time i'm a pretty confident person i've always been like a very strong energy and presence and i've always been like it'll be fine i'll figure it out um i understand that not everybody's like that so i'm not saying again i'm not saying everybody should quit their jobs and go for a year but Life hack number one from Corinne. Everybody should quit their jobs and go travel for I mean, a year. I mean, personally, yeah, you should. But I understand that there are different personalities and goals and dreams and priorities for people. But taking a weekend trip or a week trip somewhere in Mexico, which is super close, I would say going within the U.S., but the culture like the backpacker culture is different. Whereas when you go to Europe or when you go to Central and South America or Southeast Asia, it's just a hub of backpackers. So the vibe is kind of like live the day to the fullest, do everything that you can, meet as many people. So if you were to go to Montana alone for a weekend, as beautiful as it is, 
you wouldn't get that social aspect and you would feel that you're alone. Whereas if you go to South America, Southeast Asia, Europe, you wouldn't feel like you were alone for that long and it would kind of change your perception of what traveling alone is. Because I always explain it to people, if you are traveling with someone or you're traveling with a group and you go to lunch, you have someone to sit at lunch with. So you're talking to that person that you came with. You don't need the people around you. But if you go alone and you're in a foreign country especially, your ears perk up when you hear English. And so you're like, oh, where are you from? And that starts a conversation. That was my first also like connecting experience when I was traveling by myself. I was in Budapest and I was eating by myself and I heard these two girls speaking in English. They were Australian and I just started chatting with them. They invited me to this party at their hostel that night. I went there, I was there all night and they had an extra bed in their room. I, ended, I had my stuff across town, so I didn't need a place to stay, but we just had so much fun. We're so close. I ended up staying there, hanging out with them the whole next day until they left a day later. So they kind of became my temporary crew and I was kind of in shock that I just got so close with these people so fast. And then I learned the more I traveled, that's the norm. Like that's what happens. Now I have people all over the world that if I go to Singapore or Australia or Prague or anywhere, I have them saved in my phone under their countries. So when I go anywhere, I will look like Australia, Spain, and see who I have and then hit them back up. And then it's such fond memories that, and it, it's not like built on anything. So it's not something that you need to sustain and check in and like, how are you and Merry Christmas and all that stuff. It's just like, hey, I'm in your country. How are you? And those connections that I have wouldn't be created, fostered, solidified if I was in groups. In a way, you've made the world smaller in some form. Does it feel smaller than it did, let's say, three, four years ago? The world is an equally small and massive place. So we can get anywhere we want. There are planes to everywhere. And when there are not planes, there are buses and trains. So in that sense, it's small and we can connect to people all over the world, but there's also so much of it to see. So my concept of the world is like that. It's tiny and massive at the same time. Like I told you, I wanna see every country before I die. And that's a big feat at right now. I think last time I was on, I was at 27 or 28. I went to 11 countries, so I'm either at 38 or 39. Almost at 40. I know. I, I wanted to go to Venezuela, but I, um, well, I tried to go to Bolivia, um, and that was a five-hour shit show and a half. Um, it didn't work out. I was at the border, and um, both my passports, American and Israeli, require a visa, which is fine. I knew that. Um, I took out what I thought was enough money was $160 for the visa. Um, and when I got there, they're like, oh, the embassy's closed. And I was starting to get sick. Like I was starting to get strep and it was really hot. And like when I say like the border and immigration, it's basically just a storage container on the border. 
that you walk past and talk to people. Yeah. Um, I was getting super sick. It was super hot. They were like, you have to wait for the embassy to open in an hour. I was like, okay. So I sat down, waited for an hour. And then this like tour guide came with like an American and she was like, oh, I'm going to take him to the office to like fill out the paper. And I was like, whoa, whoa, what? And she's like, yeah, there's an office like in Bolivia, like walk across the border. They do all your paperwork for you. You don't need to like wait on the embassy or anything. I was like, great, I'll do that. Walk with them, wait, get this, get that. I'm like, again, just like my health is declining. I ate soup from the back of a wagon on the side of the road on a little tiny stool. Long live soup from the back of a wagon. Um, it was really good though. Um, and then got that paperwork done. I'm like condensing this, but each of this is like an hour. And I'm like walking back and forth uh, across the border to like get certain documents and like all the soldiers with like big ass guns, they're just like, okay, like you're fine. They're like, what are you going? I'm like, I, it's fine. Um, got my documents done, came back, gave them the documents. And in Argentina, the inflation was really, really bad. So their highest bill is a thousand, but by that time it was like almost like 400 to one. Oh. So, and it was $160. So I'm just counting, 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 counting. He's putting the visa in my passport. And I realized that I'm $20 short because I just paid for the process of it, which I didn't realize. Um, and so then I walked back across the border, went to an ATM, tried to pull out cash. Uh, ATM ate my card. And I already had that happen in Patagonia. What do you mean ate your card? Just went in and continued to go in. Just There you go. So, okay. So ate just card. basically yeah. ate my card. Already had that happen in Patagonia. Uh, couldn't get my card back because it was a Sunday and they were going to be closed and we were continuing, like we were trekking. So whatever. So that was my last card. And I just gave him all of my cash and um, the bank was closed. Where did that leave Corinne at that moment? The bank was closed, but I could see people in and the security guard was like, no, 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 like cerrado, cerrado. And I was like, which means closed. And I was like, I don't need the bank. I just need someone to get my card, please. And I'm like, you know, when you're sick, you're just very like much more emotional and it's hot and like things are not working out. And I just like, start, and I was like, please. And I'm explaining, my Spanish is fire now because I was speaking in only Spanish for a year. Um, That's good. Yeah. Um, so I'm just explaining to him. I was like, I don't need the bank. I don't care for the bank. I am not here. Like my visa, all my stuff is back at the border. Like I need all. And he's like, okay, send someone out. She did something, gave me my card back. And at that point, that was just kind of like straw that broke the camel's back in this like process. Um, and I flipped a coin. All my decisions were flipping coins. Like if I didn't know which country to go to or which city, I would just flip a coin, which is how it got me to Bolivia, but whatever. Flipped a coin. How funny is that, right? The coins yeah. thing caused your next whatever month. Yeah, I was meant to be home. Coin told me to go home. I came back to the border and I was like, listen, I don't want Bolivia anymore. Give me my cash, take the visa. And he's like, I can't because I already put it in your passport. And I was like, well, take it out. And he was like, it doesn't work like that. I'm like, rip the page if you have to. Like, I am not going into Bolivia. Like, I'm going home. I want to go home and I'll be back. And he's like, okay, well, when you come back, we'll just make a note and you can pay the extra $20. And I was like, you are not understanding me. My card just got eaten. I didn't tell him I got it back because I was like, I have no cash. I need to, a bus. I need, a, and I took a five-hour bus at five in the morning to get here. And um, he after an hour and I'm like bawling on the side of the road outside this container, he like finally was like, okay, ripped it out, which I didn't understand why it was so difficult. 
gave, it's not that easy to rip things out. Gave me my money back. I got on the first bus out of there to Jujuy. I was in Argentina to Jujuy. Um, booked a ticket to go home the next night. When I was on the like five hour bus back, the police and like border control come on to buses inter like uh, sporadically depending on which area you're in in South America and it's normal it's fine but I was so sick that I went into like such a deep like sick sleep so when they came on I they like kind of like woke me up I gave them my passport and I guess I didn't put it back in my bag and I just went back to sleep and so when I left the bus and I didn't know that or realize it when I left the bus I always check behind me to see because it was buses all the time, unless I'm like crossing into different countries and, and there is no option to do a bus, I'm on a bus. So I'm used to these like five, six, seven, eight, like I got on a bus that I thought was eight hours and it ended up being uh, 18. And I only realized that like five hours and I was like, oh, we only have four more hours to go, right? And they're like, what? Like, no. And we got somewhere at like four in the morning, I'm like, walking around like everything's closed I don't know where to sleep nightmare anyways um that's a long bus ride yeah so I'm used to buses I don't lose things I get all my stuff so when I got off I looked around turned there was nothing I had all my things and I like left I got to the hostel I checked into my room and I slept for 13 hours straight that's how sick I was like thankfully the hostel was really nice and it was like a mom and pop kind of thing. They're like bringing me tea, bringing me food. Like weren't like, hey, you need to check out. It's 10 a.m. Um, and only when I was getting ready to to leave to the airport to get on my flight, my first flight to go home and pay them for the hostel, I looked in my bag and my passport was nowhere to be found. And I'm like, I already see my bed at home. Like I already like am hugging my mom mentally. And I'm like, I've been like, I need to, I I need to leave. And I tore my suitcase apart, like tore, cause I backpack, but I backpack with a suitcase. Highly recommend because carrying 50 liters on you is not, not a vibe. Um, but tore everything apart and it was like nowhere to be found. And I had no idea where it was. Cause I was like in, I was delusional when I was on the bus. Um, and I, didn't know what to do. I ended up going to the airport and I was like, listen, I'm still flying within Argentina because I was flying Jujuy to Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires to Panama, Panama to home. So I was like, just let me fly to Buenos Aires. And she's like, no, because you came here on a bus. We can't, if you came here on a plane, fine. But if you came, like, you came here on a bus, there's nothing we could do. So lost the money for the flight, um, went to the bus station, ended up taking a 24-hour bus Oof. to Buenos Aires. And right before I got on the bus, I saw, I, it like clicked to me that I remember, like I probably left it on the bus. And I asked the bus company that I just bought my ticket from, I was like, hey, do you have their phone number so that I can, they're like, why do you need it? And I was like, oh, I left my passport. And they're like, if you don't have your passport, you can't get on this bus. And this is like, wait, this is not like a big city. Like this is like Northern Argentina, like far from big cities. You're saying Hujuy is not Hujuy. a capital city of the planet? No, okay. No. Um, and she's like, well, you can't get on this bus either. And I was like, again, like this is one after the other. And I was like, you don't understand the reason why I'm on this bus. It's because I can't get on a flight. Right. Um, and this is like 10 minutes before my bus is about to leave. 
And so they're like, okay, okay, we'll figure it out. We went to like tourist police. They like gave me like a temporary authorization to get on this bus. I like just barely made it. And then in the entire 24 hour bus ride, no police officer or border patrol came on and checked it. So I didn't need it, but yeah. You had it though. Yeah. So anyways, going back to your thing, I was supposed to go to Bolivia, uh -huh. didn't, S wanted to go to Venezuela. Um, didn't realize that to go to Venezuela, you need to go to Washington, D.C. to take out a visa. You can't just go because Americans need a visa to go to Venezuela. If I want to go to Venezuela, I have to go to Washington, D.C. first. Washington, D.C. You have to physically go to Washington, D.C. Yes. All right. And um, it's like a whole process. And I was just like not. It wasn't that crucial for me. Um, I did really want to go to, uh, Guyana, French Guyana and Suriname because Guyana has the highest single drop waterfall in the world. Venezuela has the highest water, waterfall in the world. It's called Angel Falls and in Guyana it's Cayotur Falls. Um, so yeah, and nobody goes to those countries. So I want to see them. So they're in the minority of visits from people. I think Guyana is one of the least, it's either Guyana or French Guyana is one of the least like touristic or like visited places. Is there something to people wanting to go where other people go because they feel more comfortable because other people go there? 100%. Yeah. 100%. Like people stick to the recommendations and they stick to um, what's mostly online you know like what's mo most most prevalent online um i didn't do that i went to places that nobody has ever heard of i was there like one place caño cristales in colombia which is one of the most beautiful places i've ever been to in my life out of all countries um so it was okay looking location stunning uh that's actually where i got stuck oh. <laughs> and i ended up road tripping with two brothers and their dad for two days um but all the tourists there were Colombians. And I was this lonely American that just also went through a whole process to get there. And they're like, what are, first of all, how did you get here? What are you doing here? Like, how do you know? And who are you with? Like, where's your group? And I'm like, I'm by myself. And I just wanted to come here. And that makes it even better for me because seeing the same sites, you have the same pictures as everybody. You have the same stories as everybody. You are surrounded by tourists, um, which in South America, it's obviously less than Europe. It's still a lot because there's like a lot of backpackers. Um, but knowing that you went to places, like I went to this place called Punta Gainas, it's like a desert on the ocean. Like, and it's like, you would think like, oh, like just sand, but it's like sand dunes. And you think you're like in the desert, like barren wasteland, like no life or water anywhere near you. And then you just go like right over and it's the ocean. It's really crazy. Chuck's the position there. Yeah. It's yeah. So, um, things like that kind of like fuel me. Like, I love that. Like I will go on these crazy long ass rides to the middle of nowhere to know that I got somewhere that is stunning and that I can recommend it to people and more people can go. Do you take some hits for doing the trips that are not like the already certified and this is the path you take and this is the way you go? Did you take any hits for going like, oh, I'm gonna go over here that's not exactly the most recommended or the main place or the most popular? I would have taken hits if I wasn't 
if I didn't prioritize speaking Spanish like mm -hmm. and connecting to locals because like locals helped me out every chance they got like everywhere in mostly Colombia Colombia they just want to help you from the goodness of their heart like really so in Caño Cristales I I got lucky if I didn't get lucky I that would have happened because I met the two brothers and their dad like on this like rickety ferry to like ferry all the cars across this river that we're going and they're like what's your deal and I kind of just like told them they're like do you have a like do you know where you're staying and like do you have the tour booked because you can't go into Caño Cristales without a tour guide and I met someone at a previous bus station that you can't go out into the city without a tour guide no so Caño Cristales is not a city, city. it's like a a canyon so oh. it's basically uh, the river of five colors. So there's five different sections of this massive, massive river in these like, they're not canyons, they're like crazy rock formations. And every section of the river is a different color. So, and like when I, it's not like, oh, like Rainbow Mountain and like, it's like super bright on photos. And then when you get there, it's like kind of like, okay, like you call it a rainbow, but it's not like these are pink, like river, full rivers because there's flowers inside that they're, the texture is kind of like a um, a dandelion, the one that you like blow, yeah. So the texture of the petals is like a dandelion, but they're attached. So they like move in the water and they're not just like flowers. So it looks like the water. So there's pink and like, I'm talking pink, pink. red, orange, yellow, and green. Bright, like Bright. brighter in person than it is in pictures. It's. Wow. It's insane. Like, highly recommend. So, the city right where you sleep is La Macarena. Tiny. Like, when you watch those, like, old Western movies and they're, like, four streets and everybody, like, that's how it is. Like, it's tiny. But you sleep there to go into Caño Cristales, which is the natural site. So, La Macarena is super small. Not that many hotels or hostels you can't just like pop on hostel world or like booking.com and be like here which I, I was like i'll figure it out when i get there kind of cristales you can't enter without a guide um so the guys when i met them on the ferry they're like where are you staying and like who's your guide and i was like don't know and don't know and they're like people book this stuff like two months in advance like it's 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 pretty hard to kind of just like show up like are you like how and i was like i don't know like i'll figure it out and they're like take our number just in case we'll see if like our hotel has space or our guide has space, whatever. One of the girls at a previous bus station gave me a number of a guy that could have been a guide. When I got to La Macarena, my luck, cause this is also, I got there by a eight hour off-road Jeep, like, and like off-roading. And there's like, <laughs> these aren't like seats. Everything's open. It's like a truck, like, like a pickup truck that just has benches on the side and everything's open. So you're just like, da, 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 you're da. with the ground with like, you are the ground. <laughs> like, <laughs> literally. Feels great. Feels great. Um, so our Jeep pull, like when we got to La Macarena, we pulled up right in front of a hotel and I told my driver, like, I don't know where I'm sleeping. And he was like, okay, like ask this guy pulled up in front of this hotel. Like that's where we were like unloading everybody. I like walk in. He's like, we have one room left and I was like great I'll take it and then texted the guide that I got his number from a 
previous bus station like two transports ago. Um, and he just like rocked up on his motorcycle, came straight to me. I was like, how did you know it was me? He's like, Gringa, like, come on. Like, who would it be? <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's yeah. just you. <laughs> um, and I had my tour and my guide set up for the next day. Um, so that was like a little bit of luck. And then getting out of there, the entire city's cash only, which is fine. I spent more than I thought. Again, like all this cash problem, I spent more than I thought, but they have an ATM there. When I got back from my tour, uh, there's a blackout in this entire small town. And I was like, okay, like when are we, when are we getting it up and running, you know? Um, and they're like, no, I mean, we don't know how long, like this doesn't, this isn't usual. So it could be an hour, it could be a day, it could be a week. And I was like, excuse me? Like I didn't even have enough cash to spend for another night in the hotel. And the bus station cash, there's a airport there, tiny, tiny, but it's like $300 to get there from anywhere, but cash only. And so I am like, okay. And I see the two brothers and their dad like sitting, having coffee. So I like sit with them and chat and we talk about the tour. We saw that we saw each other throughout the day. And um, they were like really worried about me because I'm just this like gringa that's in the middle of, and like there's like civilization and then there's like jungle and then there's like La Macarena. So this is like middle of nowhere and I'll get to that. But they were like worried. They were like, where are you going? And I was like, I didn't say anything about not having money. Obviously, I'm not going to be like, I'm stranded. I need help. No. You should have done that. You should have been like, no. I'm stranded. No. I need no. Never. Everything's always fine because when you need something, those are when the people that are going to want to like capitalize on your vulnerabilities, that's when they're going to come out and they're going to take advantage of you. And that's when bad stuff happens. But if everything's fine and someone just offers you help and you could take it or leave it and you feel their vibe, then that's fine. But so they were like, where's your path? I was like, oh, I might go here or I might go there or I might go this. And they're like, listen, because they were on like a Jeep trip, like brothers and dad. And they were like, we're going here. We can, you can come with no pressure but you can come with us and we can drop you off somewhere along the way or you can come all the way back up with us. And I was like, sounds good. In my head, that's my only option. I don't have another option. I don't have, I don't. There's no backup plan. I also don't want to be stuck here. Like, I don't know how long I'm going to be stuck here and like just a waste of days and I did what I needed to do. So those are the people that I ended up going on a two day road trip with them. I was in that car for like 10, 12 hours each day and they paid for, I didn't, again, I didn't say I didn't have money. They paid for everything, snacks. When we stopped, we stayed at a hotel. They got me my own room, like breakfast, everything, everything. And when I finally got to an ATM, I tried to pay them back and they're like, no, 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 like you were our guest. The funny thing is when I finally got service, oh, before I came with them, um, they were like, we just need to make some calls first. To like, and I was like, okay. And they're like calling and like, this was the beginning of my trip. So my Spanish was good, but it wasn't like super sharp. And I was like, what's, what's the vibe? And they're like, no, like we just need to call and uh, make sure it's okay. Cause like the road that we're taking, it's through paramilitary territory, like guerrilla territory, like Colombian government has no say, doesn't step foot, doesn't go there. And I was like, I mean, if it's not going to be safe for you guys, they're like, no, 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 it's going to be fine. And so they talked to whoever they talked to and they were like, okay, 
rules are just um, you can't get out of the car at any time that we're through this like 10 hour stretch. And if for whatever reason you get out of the car, absolutely no English. And like, again, a normal person would probably be like, I'm okay, you know, like we're fine. Um, but I was like, all right, we're good. If you're good, I'm good, let's go. Um, That's that tough nature there. And yeah, and for real, like when we drove through, there's like posters of like leaders in like military uniform and like all these kids standing behind them like saluting and like or like a group of kids like holding AKs or what and I was it, it's just like another world like it was and super super small towns anytime we drive through you have to drive really really slow and like everybody kind of like comes out it's like this like eerie and this is like middle of the jungle like if anybody decides to do anything like no one is helping you nobody because it's not their territory you know like it is they own that. They run that. Um, You're alone. Yeah. Um, but when I finally got service, I called my mom and I was like, hey, so I met these guys and their dad and um, they offered to take me and all this stuff and whatever. And so I'm just like road tripping with them. And she was like kind of and again, like my mom, this is my third and a half trip like this. So like she's used to like all these like random updates and like I keep in really strong contact with her so she doesn't get as worried but she, so she was like at work doing something so she's kind of like okay okay whatever and then like two minutes passed by and she calls me back and she was like wait what like <laughs> where are you who are you with what's up what 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 and i was i was sitting with them and i was like no 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 it's okay like and i like showed them showed her them i was like they're fine and like they're good and she was like okay like she's like they like she could feel their vibes too and then ended up being like really amazing. They're like one of the biggest residential developers in Colombia. Like they have a bunch of um, like modern developments all over their town. Ended up like staying in their house with them. I met their mom. She made me hot chocolate. Like I like hot chocolate. Yeah, it was it was really, really, really great. And if I didn't connect, I would have been stuck in La Macarena for I don't know how long with no money and no foreseeable way to get out you know so it's like would i have been better with an organized tour yeah but did i have a better experience and did, did i see a completely different side of colombia that very 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 few tourists or non-colombians seen and do i appreciate that and cherish it absolutely so i've always been very fond of that kind of experience because then it's just you it's unique to you and it's almost like it confirms your place on this earth is something versus you could have been replaced by another person doing the same thing. Almost. Yeah. The neediness concept you brought up earlier is very good. If people are asking for something and they come from a needy place versus they're just offering and they could take it or leave it. Yeah. That's a big difference maker. And you can assess the person. Is that assessment always happening with all the people you run across? Like how much is it like they're trying to grab on something or get something or versus they're just light-natured people living are you talking about traveling or in life both so traveling i'm constantly assessing people like i've been able to do these seemingly crazy and arguably stupid things you moron <laughs> um because i have a very good sense of people i get a really good vibe like i i can read people really really well 
and I and I prioritize doing that when I meet them traveling because that is the difference between my safety and my um like struggles anguish struggles anguish but also like danger like threat demise you know because it's also I've there's many stories of especially girls that are found here or taken there or this guy whatever you know what I mean like and I just think that the most important thing when you're traveling is to read people to get a sense you can have fun with them and I've had people and guys that have offered things or like to take me places or to show me places and I just didn't really just something wasn't clicking it was a great time we were all in the pool or drinking or whatever we were doing but I was like no I'm good and then someone else could be like hey um there's this really secluded surf spot and it's a great place to like learn and it's easy and there's not that many people do you want to come and I'm like calling my cousin over and being like yo let's go and it was amazing because I got the good vibe off that person so I think it's one of the most important things when you're traveling um it's also super important in life but the threat is not the same you know because you have your comfort you have your safety you have your friends you have your family um and it's like if you make an, a mistake on someone's judge of character when you're home then i mean it still could be super dangerous like all these like tinder like killer stories um but you can still go back to your security whereas like when you're traveling if you trust the wrong person that is the difference between a really cool unique experience and story and life-changing danger right this human so basically your human instinct kicked in way more while you're traveling and you feel more alive while you're traveling as well yeah you're doing more of the things that before you learned all the things that you learned early on in life they're natural they're like oh okay this no not that person oh how much energy do i have i need to manage my energy for this day oh we're gonna go there is that disturbing no i'm not gonna go over there okay i've met a few people like this then pattern recognition you don't have you don't even have the opportunity to think about things to like obviously in the situations where there's potential danger yeah think it through but because it it's like a now or now every everything you do every like decision to go with someone eating uh tour um like either chill go to the pool or see this site it's like a now or never type thing if you're not doing it now you're never going to do it because you can't work off the assumption that you're going to come back like i know that i want to come back to colombia will i have that opportunity especially if i want to see every single country in the world i don't know i'm not going to travel in the way that i'm like oh i'll be back i'll do it next time there is no next time so everything is very right now let's do it you want to go let's go you don't want to go. and on the opposite things that you don't want to do you're more sure about it like if you meet someone and initially you start talking to them at the bar and you realize that like they're just not your vibe like bye on to the next no hard feelings you find your people i'll find my people whereas when we're here you have to be considerate and courteous and nice because you can't just like cut people you know and maybe you work with them or they're your friend's friend or they're going to be at your friend's wedding or whatever like you can't just be like it's not working out but you can 
just not as easily and not as many people do it. Everybody's doing it traveling and it's like a no hard feelings type thing at all because everybody gets it. Like you have a limited time here, whether it's a month or six months or a year or 10, your time traveling is going to end at some point and you're going to return to real life unless you make your life travel, which to those people, I envy you. I wanted to go be an attorney for a bit. So as tempting as it is, like I wanted both. So I knew it was ending. I told my mom I was going for four to six months and ended up going for a year. So every time I talked about it to someone, I was like, oh, because the normal conversation, where are you from? Where are you from? Where have you been? Where are you going? Where are you going? How long? So I would be like four to six months. And then I'd be like six to eight months. And I'd be like eight. I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. A year. I'm going for a year. I'm going to be here for a year. And I just told my mom, I was like, I'm doing a year. This sense of urgency thing is a big deal now or never. Yeah. In regular life, you don't have to do that. You can put things off. You know, the thing where if you leave something for two weeks to get done, you'll probably do it in two weeks. But if you had a day to do it, you might do it in a day because it fits the time for it. Same thing with most things that we do in life. Oh, okay, I'll get to that. And they don't get to that. And there's all these things you can do in regular life. You cannot do that in travel. So then you don't have that issue of like postponement or delay or I didn't get to that thing. You either did it or moved on. Boom. Next thing. Make a move. It doesn't leave room for more of those errors. So it's maybe not as comfortable, but it doesn't seem like it leaves as much room for missing out or like oh, procrastination kind of thing. Mm -hmm. No, you don't have. You have to make some moves because that's your travel time. Yeah. And that was your time that you set up. This is a highlight. Point. And I had an unlimited like. Yeah, I said I was going for a year, but I could have gone for longer. It's, I don't have, I didn't have the limited time that other people did. And I saw people that were traveling for only a couple months that they were so focused on partying. So in Colombia, I met them in Medellin. They would go to Bogota, back to Medellin. Salento, back to Medellin. Cali, back to Medellin. Cartagena, back to Medellin. And it's like, there's so much to see. But again, different priorities. Like I'm not telling anybody how to travel, but there are some people that kind of just got, com they stayed where they were comfortable. They needed more of a home base yeah. than you did. And that home base thing is comfortable. Okay, now we're here again. Oh, that's a bigger life question. Do we even have a home base on this planet? Is this all, an, is that an illusion of comfortability that, okay, Medellin is so, like how different is it than why don't I make Bogota your home base or the next place you go to your home base as you go to it? Maybe the whole earth is your home. What are your thoughts on this comfortability? I think that's why people have to travel because the concept of a home base also gets altered when you travel, when you backpack and not just vacation, when you backpack through and you see life elsewhere. So... My home base is where my family is, but if I didn't have the family that I have or we weren't as close, God forbid, or I was an only child and my parents like packed up and went to RV, I wouldn't be like, I can't leave LA. I would be gone in a second. So I think traveling shows you other ways of life and how things are done elsewhere. And that America is not the only person that knows or not the only country that knows what they're doing because quite frankly, in the last couple of years, we do not. 
And we're just so used to this like superpower, rescue the day, like America is the greatest mentality that some people don't even have the capability to process that maybe that's not true. And it's not even an argument, but it's like every country has its flaws for sure. But when you go to other countries and you immerse yourself and you see how things are done, you realize that like our way is not the only way. When you return here after a long time being gone, does here look odd at first? Does it not look as much of home immediately? Again, me personally, home is where my family is. Right. So if my family decided to pick up and move right now to Fiji, I'd be like, okay, let me just get a little bit of work done, figure out a remote situation, and I'm there. So that's the way you look at it from the first place. Yeah. Um, but I do look at Los Angeles america our priorities in a little bit of different way it was a refresh of what i felt after asia and a refresh of what i felt after uganda it's like and that's why i think it's so important to continuously keep traveling because it's so fresh in your mind when you get back and then you kind of like fall back in you know like i've had days that i've just chilled at home done nothing you know like you can't be go 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 all the time whereas like when I was there, I'm like, I'm not gonna fall back into comfortability. I'm gonna go and see, like, I've lived here my whole life. I was born and raised here and COVID was the first time I hiked to the Hollywood sign. And like people that move here from all over, they are telling me things and I'm like, I don't, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that eventually, you know? Um, and I don't wanna be like that. Like I wanna do active things and go and explore and, but, it's so much easier to like revert into our ways and then get used to our comforts also. And like the way that we think about things and the way that we do things. Um, whereas like when you're in South America and you see, or most countries outside of America and Europe, um, you see the family dynamics, you see the prioritization of things. And like, these are people that have hard lives hard lives doing hard labor jobs and they're so happy and you're like by our logic that doesn't make sense because you have nothing you shouldn't be happy you have a flip phone you are wearing the same shoes for the last three years and they look like they should be tossed out you are traveling like two hours to work each day your life is so hard. Like, how are you so happy? And you compare it to, and again, like not to come at anybody for the struggles that they've faced, but it's just when you're really in there, you compare it to the level or the amount of depression and unfulfillment and resentment and unhappiness that we see in LA, in California, in the States. And you're just like, you have everything at your fingertips, everything. Even if all you had was a phone and an air conditioned and heated room, like home, you're set by, and like 
food and water but like you're set by like first world basic modern standards you know because your phone you can get anything anything literally in your hand heating and air conditioning so you're not dealing with immense immense heat or like super super cold and you just forced to just bundle up you know or like the windows broken and you have all the food that you want but we have people that have exponentially more than that that are so unhappy and that don't want to be here anymore and again I'm not coming at people that have those difficulties it's just it was just a crazy reminder how happy some people can be with so little it's a strong point I have a thought on that of the having so much but also feeling not good that it is related to the way the ascent happened so a lot of those individuals i would think that they had a point that was up here Mm -hmm. in their head because something they were reaching for they got and then they lost that thing and then any other thing does not make up for that or they were on some sort of substance and they can't reach that back again because they have to be a regular person so something was up at some point and so even though they have a bunch in their head this is a diminishment so i think it's slightly related to the ascent one person said an oscillating ascent is the way to go in life because then you don't have that because a drop is the worst thing for a person regardless of what you do have that effect whereas the people in the smaller town or poor area we're doing we're going and we don't know the other i don't know what you're talking about these cool things and it seems to be good and we're always on so our human instinct is always kicking in so in general we are happy that's one yeah. thing I thought in relation to that. Yeah, I agree. Corinne. Yes. We've covered a bit about travel and what you have done in South America. We've covered a few of the points that are important to me, like sense of urgency, now or never, paying attention to the people you see, pattern recognition, who can I work with, who should I not work with, that's going to affect things. You have to do it instantly. There's no delay to that. Mm-hmm. What would you do differently now if you went back to your first travel of South America? How did you become different later on in your South American trip than you were at the beginning that would have made the first few months better? Anything come to mind in that regard? Well, what's interesting about the first few months is I I planned to start in Colombia. I ended up starting in Guatemala because my cousin was like, let's meet in Guatemala. Let's do a little bit of Central and you continue to Colombia. So I did no research on Guatemala, Costa Rica, Panama. I didn't know anything. I didn't know where we were going. I was kind of just like, all right, like just tell me what to book and where and where I'm landing. And I was just like following her the whole time. And it was really nice. So kind of got a taste of traveling with someone who takes care of everything. Um, So the first few months were great because I was just like la-di-da going with the flow. I, I think I was also making myself enjoy it so much because I knew that that was going to come to an end. I knew she was going to go back because we traveled together for six weeks and then she went back to school. Um, and then when I flew on the plane from Panama to Colombia, I kind of had that like holy shit moment because 
Europe, I went with a group. Then I studied abroad. Asia, I was on like a, I was also with a group. Like I told you, you could join the bus, leave the bus. So I wasn't really alone. Uh, and then Uganda, I was working. And so as much as I've solo traveled and like set out on these adventures by myself, I was like, I'm about to be really alone, alone for a long ass time. And even I was like, can I do it? Can I actually do it the way that I thought I was doing it, you know? Um, but the second I landed, I met someone in my hostel. We went out to lunch. I ended up hanging out and it was fine. You know, like it was just the initial worry. Uh, so the first few months were great because I didn't have to think about anything. And then the first couple minutes of me being alone, I was kind of like, this is what I do. Like I know what I'm doing and it's gonna be fine. I wouldn't change anything. I would, other than my cousin, cause she executed everything beautifully. Um, I wouldn't rely on people as much. I wouldn't become comfortable because I was with people. I wouldn't like, I would just try to stay as much on when I was alone as when I was with other people. I like to point out the initial element. There's the initial part, but if you get past that, that activation energy, you're to the good part. Yeah. That's the separator. And that separates you from other people then because they wouldn't maybe jump over that hump. I mean, I had no choice. I'm on the flight. Right. (laughs) At one point you brought up earlier that I wanted to go back to the idea that it's not necessarily better with other people. Not everything is necessarily like, oh, other people are there. So now this experience is guaranteed better. Not always the case. Sometimes it could have actually been a better day without X, Y, and Z. 100%. Very important to take into account. A person who is very on their own or feeling uh, lonely, they couldn't get to that point because they just, oh, I need people. I need people. But if they were actually good in themselves, there would be times they're like, not so much. Maybe I would enjoy it on my own, of my own accord. What is one of the things that you would not do from these last that travel like what's something you would take out if you could losing my passport <laughs> going to bolivia um it seems like you're maybe very on point it's pretty on point um Yeah, I don't know. I think I did pretty well. I think there were some times where maybe I was too focused on guys, like not on seeking them out. It's like once I made a connection with someone, like it's kind of like, okay, like what are we doing or where are we going? And kind of like in this fabricated relationship for a few days. Um, and maybe sometimes I would just be like less focused on that and be like, that's not important. Mm-hmm. A slight distraction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where was the best food? I, never, I would never ask that normally, but for curiosity point. So the world says Peru, uh-huh. but Peru has the best restaurants, you know, and like, I think they have the most um, variety. 
but in terms of like street food and what you can get and like cheap and that colombia colombia for sure there's food everywhere their empanadas are amazing i got like a 300 gram yeah like a 300 gram steak and it's like it's a big one right yeah yeah okay like 0.3 kilogram so 2.4 like eight pounds. ounces like this yeah three like, it was like this big okay so large steak it was a large steak uh -huh. like large and you go here to boa like this is like what like 50 60 dollars whatever this plus like a drink plus them like bringing it out cutting it in front of me and like pouring fire over it was 30 dollars. there you go so good on the deal yeah as far as that that's not bad peru no, that was in Colombia. No, no, yeah, Peru for the but, yeah. restaurant. Colombia. Peru for the restaurant, Colombia for the street food. Did you come across the two Armenias in Colombia? I think it's Colombia. There's two Armenias. There's a place in South America that has a city. That's oh, Armenia. I did. One of them, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I saw it, I was like, great, wonderful. I actually had to uh, fly into Armenia to get to uh, Peralta. Yeah. That that's there. funny. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. Shout outs to Armenia. Now... Great. So shout outs to travel. Any little tra any traveling that I've done has really expanded my framework and given me a sense of what's happening. It's a big thing. Yeah. It's a big thing. I've enjoyed it. And and you learned a bunch of Spanish along the way too. Which, I did. which was like Like I, I could do this whole thing in Spanish. Okay, let's try just a little bit. Hola chica. Yo soy Armen. See. Si. Cuales. Which is Qual qual is to travel um donde to travels viaje is travel viaje to viaje in sud america e con corazón a país que me gusta más de todo creo que colombia porque hay muchas cosas por hacer hay mucha comida hay gente muy amable y argentina también Argentina también y muy lindo. Paragonia, súper lindo. Y todo tiempo puedes comer carne, todo tiempo. Desayuno, almuerzo, cena, por todo. So, y Buenos Aires, divertido. Ecuador. Ecuador, que un país súper lindo, súper, todo es verde, mucho lluvia. Creo que es a más... Es el lugar con más lluvia en todo el mundo, en todo el tiempo. Eh, Galápagos también interesante y lindo, pero no como creía. ¿Te entiendes lo que dije? Most of it, creía. ¿Qué es creía? Uh, thought. Oh, there's not much thought. No. <laughs> Galápagos was there. really nice, was interesting and really nice, but it wasn't how I thought it was going to be. Oh. Okay, it didn't Ecuador match. is super beautiful, really green. I think it has the most rain in the world because it's like on the equator. Um, and I wasn't expecting everything to just be like super lush. Colombia was my favorite because there's just so many amazing places, the food, the people, everything. Argentina was also really nice, uh, Patagonia. And in Argentina, you could eat steak all the time for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Your Spanish speaking ability is enough or was enough to go around anywhere and do stuff anywhere. smoothly. Anywhere. Anywhere. Less than my Spanish speaking ability is able to get. My Spanish speaking ability 
uh, gave me the opportunity to connect with people, like to truly connect, to like have them invite me to their homes for dinner and do that and all that stuff. Because I like, it's not like, oh, like, um, por favor, uh, this, you know, it's like, they understand you, like you, you can get by. Um, but like when you really try and you really, you ask them, there were a lot of words that I didn't know what it was. And I was just like speaking in Spanish. I'm like, oh wait, what, what is that word? And they tell me and now I have it in my arsenal, my vocabulary. Right. This is a great quality. It was forced. That's part of the sense of urgency. You picked it up because like, okay, I'll pick it up and this is going to help my whole travel. Yeah. Is that going to be useful? Are most of the countries you go in the world going to be, are you going to also learn other things when you learn other, go to other places later? Um, I probably won't no. learn the language like I learned Spanish mm -hmm. because I just don't see myself being anywhere for a year unless I move there. Right. Um, and I took a few years of Spanish in high school. So I had like the foundation. I didn't have conversational Spanish, but I had the foundation. It's also similar to Hebrew with the conjugations. Um, but you can learn someone's culture without learning their language. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of learning someone's culture, sometimes that happens when people are in a relationship. Mm -hmm. It can also happen when they had been dating. There are shows <laughs> that exist in the world and these shows have different goals and purposes. Some include dating and or relationships. You may have been on one. Tell us about that experience. Um, yeah, I was on Jewish matchmaking on Netflix. Um, it was just like a small appearance. Um, I didn't plan to be on the show, but they were searching for someone with lighter hair, blue, uh, blue eyes, uh, spoke Hebrew and in LA. Um, so they found me and I had already left for my trip um so i flew back to do the show and then i continued on my travels um because it was like the last episode that was filmed um it was a cool experience uh it's interesting to see yourself on tv on netflix it, my phone was blowing up when it released because i told nobody i didn't tell anybody that i did it so then people are like, what? Um, yeah, it was cool. Um, the date went well um, and we had banter back and forth. I saw sides of him that I didn't see in the date on the other episodes in the show. And so I had a lot of people kind of like reach out to me and be like, did you guys end up together? Like, please don't tell me. Like." tell me that you didn't like all that stuff. And I didn't understand because when we were on a date, he was nice and it was good and it was fine. And I'm not, I'm not speaking badly about him as a person. I just, I didn't understand like where those messages were coming from. Cause I kind of just watched my episode and then continued traveling. Um, Middle of the travels. Yeah. And so then when I watched the episodes back, I also didn't understand what the urgency was to get me because there's so many Jews in Los Angeles. There's so many Jews like Jewish girls that speak Hebrew in Los Angeles that would probably love to be on a show um, and for me it was kind of like I mean yeah sure I guess like if it works out you know I'm going to be traveling um, so I didn't understand the whole like okay let's have you fly back and like let's do it but then when I watched the previous episodes like he was 
very, very adamant on blue eyes and light hair. Um, yeah, like super adamant, like nothing else really mattered. Um, so it's a little, I don't want to say superficial. It's just like very particular and very like. Preferences. Yeah, like I think everybody has preferences, but if they were to meet someone and they vibed, like I would love for my kids to have blue eyes. So I would have a higher chance of them having blue eyes if I married someone with blue eyes. It's still possible with someone with brown eyes, neither of my parents have blue eyes, but higher chance. But if I was to make that, if I was to be like, okay, deal breaker blue eyes, because I want 100% of my kids to... 100% have blue eyes. Yeah. And I meet someone and they are amazing and we're talking and have a great time on the dates and everything and whatever. And I'm like, but he doesn't have blue eyes. Like, am I really going to turn that down? Like my my sister, she's 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, she's always been super into the gym. She did um, bikini competitions for a little bit. She was a personal trainer, did bikini competitions. Very Not like the bit, not physique or figure or physique, not the big one, but just the like, toned one um and being so tall and being in that world she dated bigger guys like people that were like six four and above and pretty muscular you know so that was her deal breaker kind of thing and when she met her now husband he's i think like two inches taller than her so she can't and she's five eight five nine and wears Big heels. I had always worn big heels. That was never a problem with someone who's six seven. When they met, and she's not as approachable. Um, and so when they met, they continued talking. They went on a date, and she's like, "But he's short and he's small. Like he's not built." She's like, he's short and he's smaller. Like, I can't. Like, there's no way. Like, there's no way. And all of us were like, just go. Like, if you had a good time with him, like, if you enjoyed talking to him and it vibed and whatever, like, you're really going to say no because he's not 6'7 and a gorilla? Like, come on. Um, and now, and thank God, they're married with, and they just have their third baby. So it's like, yeah. Like, I think if you're so set on something that's so superficial, the substance of the relationship, what doesn't matter, you know? Yeah, what can that kind of connection be? Oh, they had hazel in their hair, so that was the thing. Oh, the hazel started to disappear. I'm feeling a disconnect in the connection exactly, now. Exactly, like, especially looks, looks go. Yeah, I've never seen a good looking 180 year old person. Ever. Have you ever seen a hundred? Have you ever person? seen a hundred eighty year old no, person? No, I'm just saying you've never seen a good looking hundred. I've never seen one. Okay. In my life, and that's a fact. So yes, if you stick too much to those specific points, yeah, then you're, it, and I think all, m most people do adjust in some form, or else there would just be some individual, and that was it, and then they got one person, and then the rest of humanity kind of ended. We don't want that. We want humanity to continue. In the world that is that, which is dating and relationships, which I check a lot on. I'm watching, there's a lot of videos, all kinds of stuff. It's an interesting world. I don't know if I've asked this before, but what's, how, how would you describe the landscape as we come to the end of 2023? It's a tough, it's a broad question, but is it a, 
good landscape? Are people pairing well? Is it easy? Does AI need to come into play to help things out? <laughs> um, I think there's a nice split. I don't want to be pessimistic and say it's all bad and I don't want to be rosy falsely and like in an inflated sense of optimism and be like no we're all great i think on one side no one wants anything serious and you could be going on dates sleeping with each other sleeping over at each other's houses staying in and watching movies together going out together meeting each other's friends but we're not together we're not dating we're not in a relationship god no and you are, you know, especially, especially when you get to the point where it's like, okay, no sleeping with other people. Then what are you doing if not dating? You know, so I think, um, and like, don't get me wrong, I think the kind of advancement of casual relationships is good i'm all for like casual exploration of relationships seeing where it goes and then like on and again like we talked about it just the liberation of females in sex but the refusal to kind of like put a label on it because like we're just we're just not going to put a label on it why what changes? You know, it's it's so interesting to me because if you have all those things, you're basically dating. So I'm pessimistic in that sense that I think a lot of people like stay in casual relationships that are not really casual. And then you think of that person as casual and then either they get sick of it or you guys move or decide to move on and they continue on with their life because you tr tr treated them as casual and then they're off and you're like, wait, I never thought that there was an option. Like, an, like, I never thought that it was even possible for me to lose you, which my friend is kind of going through now. Yeah. Um, but on the optimistic side, I think we had a shift in the last couple of years that like more people are more ready to settle down. And maybe it's, I'm 27 now and I was here, I was 25, but I'm 27 now. So maybe it's like just the people that I'm around and the age and people are like getting married. But I think generally like people are down for like that real love. Now again, I don't know about Gen Z. I don't know about younger. I don't, I don't know. Um, so it, it could actually just be my age. Um, I don't think AI should play a part. Uh, if you've ever seen The One on Netflix, you should watch no, it. Yeah, It's... They do a DNA match and like match you to like your soulmate based on your DNA. And obviously like things go wrong and think some some people are already married and like just a whole thing. Um, so yeah, I don't think AI should play a part. There's something to the pendulum shift you are talking about that now it is switching to what you're describing. I don't think it's just the age that you're describing to more of those types of relationships that are something because of the many years of social media rise and what that led to that there's a pendulum pushback somewhat on that so that I think that is the case I don't know if it's just I don't think it's just an age thing it seems like it's more of a societal response somewhat 
not in full. And there's still what you're describing that your friend is going through right now. These things are live right now, long live existence. Yeah, and it can be impactful. And that on that end for your friend, it's unrequited feeling, as it's called. And that's like in those instances you would rather have like I lost I lost the like chocolates that I bought than an unrequited feeling. You know, like what you were saying is like cause you can purchase them again, you know, or like my book, where'd I leave my book? That's smaller than an unrequited uh feeling. Mm-hmm to put them into angles and such. I'll do one more that I have on relationships. What's a good way that they develop? Does each person have everything like set in place already before they start? Is that necessary? No. Do they uh, uh, progress meshing with one another? What's a good way that from what you've seen of ones that have worked well, how they were from the the beginning. So my parents. She uh, was once born. I'm just adding that classic Armin from five years ago saying my, stuff that's not really adding. My parents um, met when they were 19 and 21. That says something. And I believe they were married within three or six months of meeting. I think my grandparents were married within three months. Um, And my parents have been together for 50 years. How do you compete with this? So, A, they were, like, all the components of not working out, they met really young, like, nine, eight, sorry, 18 and 21. They had my brother when they were 19 and 22. So they met, met when they were really young. Didn't know each other for that long. Had a baby immediately, being 19 and 22. Really got things going. Moved to a different, had another kid, moved to a different country with that other kid, started from nothing, had nothing, like the whole immigrant story. Had three more kids here, families all back there, a lot of stress, a lot of this, and they started a business and they've been working together for 30 years. Like frustrations, office, arguments, everything. Now, when people say like, oh, I wanna, I need to like find myself and be sure of myself and figure myself out before I can like meet my person, I get that. I understand the thought behind that and I understand the importance However, not as many relationships start and build from growing up together anymore because the age has pushed back. So when you're 27 or when you're 30 versus when you're 20, you're pretty set in your ways when you're 30. You know how you like your coffee. You want to do this in the morning. This is how you like the temperature in your room. This is how you want to load the whatever, like like load the dishwasher or you do laundry, whatever, like things around. And I'm not even talking about like big life things. I'm talking about things around the house because it's your space. You're 30, probably live with a roommate that is on your same page or some people still live at home because of the this economy um and then for the people that live alone like they are pretty set but like when you're 20 or even 25 it's like 
you still go with the flow like okay no problem like i'll just turn it down a little bit or like we should do this or like i'm still trying to figure out like my hobbies and my schedule and my details and all that stuff you're still able to adapt so when you meet someone at that age and you decide to move in together and you're figuring out together and then you figure out what works for each other together and then that becomes the way you both do things as a collective like this is how you both like the room to be or like this or you go out at on these days or these times or whatever you grow as a unit you grow together intertwined and then you can remain intertwined so when people are like i need to figure all my shit out when you meet that other person okay let's say the relationship goes well and then you move in together and you've been so used to what five ten years of living on your own or solidifying these habits or these um, preferences. Once someone comes into the picture with a whole different set of preferences and um, ways that you do things, it starts to be tricky, you know? And you're like, okay, well, do I love you enough to deal with the fact that you leave your socks right outside the door or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, so I don't agree that you need to figure out all your shit before you meet your person. I think you should ideally still have things to figure out and be with them as you're figuring those things out. It's a strong point. It's a great example you give for that because they're early, they're adjustable, they're adaptable, they went. They did all the things that if you told somebody right now who's 22, let's say, 22 year old, like, how am I going to do that? That's not going to last. Yeah. Like, they'd be like, I want to do that. But it's almost like you can't catch up to that in some ways at the current moment. It's something. And then so you worked through together that is potential. If it's all so prepared beforehand, it's almost not, you're not really intermeshing in a way along the way. It's already set up. It's more like a happenstance. It's like if you're working on a group thesis. Right. But the group shows up when you're done with the thesis. Right. Oh, my gosh. What an example. You would be like, get out of here. Like, I'm example. done. I finished. This is beautiful and perfect, and I don't want to adjust it. Maybe you'll take some proofreading or a little bit of corrections here and there. But when someone tries to, like, you just worked so long and got to a point where you're like, submit i love it and then someone comes in and just chops it all up you're gonna take that you're also gonna take it personally you're not gonna be like on one hand you're gonna be like i don't want to change it because i think it's great i've gotten to a point where i think i am centered with myself and i like everything and my schedule and my routine and whatever so i don't want to change but then on the other hand if someone comes in and says like oh maybe you should try doing even if it's in a constructive criticism type of way, even if at the end of the day, it would make your thesis or you as a person better, you're going to take that personally. You're gonna be like, I just worked so hard and so long. You didn't see all the work that I just did. You didn't see everything that I put in. And you're gonna come in and just chop everything up and move it around and say that that's better. Like, who are you? Who are you to say that? Even though I love you, who are you to say that? There's a lot of self self-worth in that expression. Because you're saying, these are the things I believed in that I did, I worked on. They do matter. You can't just come in and crumble them rapidly or work with me on them in some way. There's a big thing of self-worth in that. And if you don't pay attention to that, then you'll 
toss away some of your self-worth and you'll regret it later on. Mm -hmm. Very strong point being brought up here. Wow. And then, yeah, the, you just described the, the dynamic of the, there's the dichotomy of the early people that paired early. And a lot of those are 10, 20, 30 years ago. And then some now that are like, you know, we'll do it in 2035 uh, or something, you know, 2042, we'll do that. And it's not that it sounds good. This one sounds better. Like, oh, okay, we're already set. We got our things. It sounds better. Like you're more prepared, but it is like that thesis, the thesis is already there. So all the functionality of the intermeshing, that's reduced. Now it's more just, I'm a table, you're a chair and it works. But it's not like formulated together. Like we're a centerpiece on a table. There you go. We'll call this the centerpiece metaphor. Trademark, trademark. That's a good one. Boy. What we're describing right now is impacting who knows millions of people directly when they're thinking about the timings. How can I catch up to that? Do I imagine? This is a big part, the timing. It's a hefty thing. It's a large one. Shout out to your parents. Thank you. They did a smooth time, and then they have energy, and then they do for the then they have children. everything early, quick. Well, yes and no. My mom had my brother at nineteen, and she had me at thirty nine. So she was both a young and an older mom. Right, but by the time you then she's got experience and smooth and like yeah. So and then now she has all the grandkids. Yeah. Yeah. We just had our seventh, our seventh boy, born. My sister had her second boy, but he's the seventh grandson. We have one granddaughter. <laughs> Shout outs to this. Yeah. This is super cool. This is all in support of the same concept of like, let's get it going type thing. Mm -hmm. Each additional person is another support of that original concept because that's where the framework comes from. Yeah. I like that one. What can I say? Relationships, I'll leave there. I could do the topic like uh, substantially. Up to you. We're switching out here. Work. Yeah. You do work. It is in the attorney field. Mm -hmm. Legal field, if you will. And you wouldn't know what you're doing. When you're outside of the buildings <laughs> in downtown LA or other parts of the country, you just see a building, some lights are on maybe at night. What are they doing? Who knows, right? Or smaller buildings or wherever. You do legal work. It is, how would you describe it? And then what is the specificity of it that you most deal with? So I am an attorney. I, um, we spoke a little bit about it last time that I wanted to get into human trafficking. So when I came back, I looked for jobs that were in that realm. Um, and I found a great firm called Jeff Anderson and Associates, um, that primarily handles childhood sexual abuse. Um, so our clients are adults, um, but the abuse happened when they were kids. And so the statute of limitations normally is 22 years from the age of 18, which just in different words says until you're 40. So you, if you were abused as a child, because a child can't bring a case on their own behalf, they don't have the capacity to, so their parents have to bring it. Like there are lawsuits that say like on behalf of, you know, um, and, but with childhood sexual abuse, most of the time they don't know they're getting abused because they're too young to comprehend that. And even if they are, if they're closer in ages that they do understand that this was wrong, they feel shame, guilt, embarrassment, uh, blame like on them. So they're not gonna say anything. Um, 
And now another part of that is 90% of the cases that I handle are against the Catholic Church. So there's that Catholic, there's a combination of like Catholic guilt. There's a combination of, because most of the time it's male priests on male victims. So feelings towards homosexuality. Um, and when you're abused as a child by a man or even as a teenager by a man and certain things happen, it gets into your head like either A, am I homosexual and I believe in this religion that doesn't think favorably of them and my parents probably won't think favorable, favorable of them and B, how could I out something? Like how could I blow the whistle on something that would blow back on me as being homosexual, you know? So it's like they are dealing with a whirlwind of stuff. So the it kind of just gets kept under wraps. So they don't tell anybody. They either don't realize because they were too young. Because also, I didn't know this, um, but just from speaking with uh, clients and looking more into the Catholic Church because I'm Jewish, um, I guess that in the Catholic Church, they believe that uh, priests are handpicked by God. That's that's what my understanding has been just by speaking with people. Um, so when someone is abusing you and either you're a child or you're a teenager and you've been so religious growing up and ingrained in the religion and, and you truly believe that every priest has been handpicked by God, this is technically God doing this to you. This is technically the hands of God. This is a, God's representation on this earth doing this to you. So it either must be okay, like not wrong, like you think it's wrong, or like if they know it's wrong, then does God want to punish me? Like why is he doing this? Or like I can't stop it because this is God. So they don't tell for that reason. And then uh, they later in life something either triggers and they realize or they've been holding on to it for so long and they are like screw it i'm ready to come forward and most of these cases are filed confidentially anyways so you're not revealing yourself um because there's a lot of psychological damage that happens a lot a lot there's it sticks with you from really really minor incidents to really really extreme incidents it sticks with these kids it sticks with these men um, so they have until the day before they're 39, I mean, like the day before their 40th birthday, the last day that they are 39 to file a suit and then it's shut down. Like statute of limitations has run. But recently in 2019, the California legislature opened up a statutory window that said any claim, any year, any time, you have three years to file it. So my office filed 1500 cases only in California. There was a similar window in New York. There's similar windows opening up in Arkansas. There's windows popping up everywhere because it's not that much time for a lot of these men that have repressed or um, refused or have a hard time or just like ignored, you know, everything that happened. So they're like, eh, whatever. And then their statute ran and it's just unfortunate that they have no recourse. Um, so yeah, so I, my clients are adults that were abused as children. You talk with them directly or you do? I do. Oh, you do? I do. 
how prevalent is it or do you get a sense of how prevalent it is in the church or do they describe it as well do they say like oh there was another person as well who had the same kind of scenario so most of the priests that we see as the perpetrators are repeat offenders so we have um there's a website called Bishop Accountability that you can search up any priest's name and see if there are reports. We also have our internal files of like priest files, of every document, every case, every complaint, everything that is related to that one priest. So like I'm going over a priest file now that um, is 3,000 pages on one priest, 3,000 pages spans from 1964 to 2009. Because in the Catholic Church, they don't remove them from service. They just relocate them. And that's why, so like when we sue, we're not suing, most of these perpetrators are dead, by the way, because this abuse occurred in the 60s, 70s oh. towards children. Those priests were already in their 30s, 40s, 50s, you know? Um, so you're really suing the church. I'm suing the yeah, church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we are su like our case is the Roman Catholic Church of in like the diocese, the archdiocese, the parish, everything. And the reason why we're able to do that is because of this um level of knowledge method of covering up and lack of accountability for anybody involved. So it's like when they get a complaint their response is, oh, don't worry, he's a good priest. And then they get another complaint and it's the same response. And then maybe they'll get another complaint and they'll be like, okay, let's move you 20 miles away because there are so many parishes and everything is under a diocese or an archdiocese. The other reason why we don't sue perpetrators individually is because once we do that, they then have a constitutional right to cross-examine our clients. Because when you sue a person individually, you have that right to cross-examine right. who's suing you. It's not like a criminal case where like the defendant has the choice to, I mean, like the defendant has a choice whether he wants to testify or not testify, you know, like for the state's case and like to make a claim for himself. In civil court, if someone is suing you, you have the right to put them on the stand and ask them questions. And that's that. that wouldn't be our case. We can obviously file a motion or argue or whatever, but that's not our choice. So we don't want to subject our clients to that. And these perpetrators are not, because at this point we're suing them civilly. We're not, we're not criminal attorneys. We're not suing to send anybody to jail, which would be nice, but it's a higher burden to prove. And this happened years ago. So it's easier for us to prove it in civil court and go into settlements with the church rather than go into criminal court, prove every single individual case with evidence that's dating back to the 60s and like vague recollections um, and put that in front of a jury. So we are civilly suing and the perpetrator doesn't have money. You know, like they're a servant of the church. They get paid for by the church. Um, so the church is the one that really has money. Uh, but their recently discovered way around it is when we sue a diocese or an archdiocese, they just, if there's enough suits, they'll just declare bankruptcy. They do chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, so it's like reorganization. And then that moves us from one court, from the civil court, like the proceedings for clergy cases, 
over to a bankruptcy court. And now our clients are like creditors and the church is like a debtor. So it's a whole different process. So it's like we just went, again, I just joined, so I didn't personally go through, but it's like the firm and the clients go through three years of litigation in one court. And then all of a sudden we're pushed back to, pushed to another court where it's not to say we start all over again, but it's not a quick process. It doesn't matter that you just did three years. If this bankruptcy proceeding takes this long, it's gonna take this long because there's 400 people making claims. And like when you ask about the prevalence, go ahead. I was just gonna say like, uh, you should watch the movie Spotlight. Spotlight is um, a movie that basically blew the top on the level of abuse in Catholic churches and the level of cover-ups because the cover-up is so meticulous. And if you know what to look for, it's so apparent and obvious in all their documents because the Catholic church keeps very, very detailed documents because also for tax exemptions, also it's in, it's part of canon law that everything has to be documented. So every relocation of a church, every relocation of a priest to a different church, every complaint, every, everything, there's a paper trail. And so um, I think it was the Boston Globe that blew the top on this whole thing because they discovered this pattern of cover-ups and uh, they were speaking with someone who I think was a former priest or like consultant and he said, um, six percent of all catholic priests commit incidences of sexual misconduct now when you hear it as like a percentage wise six percent like oh that's small one in 16. when you think of how many churches dioceses archdioceses schools organizations that are connected to the catholic church six percent of that like i remember in the movie because like the movie is based on a true story in the movie they were like doing the math and because they only had like a name of 13 priests and they're like that sounds like a lot like in their neighborhood or something so they called him and he was like listen it's six percent of all priests so if you have x amount of priests and they calculated that it was like 90 and they tracked down those 90 and like corroborated reports so it's like in one neighborhood, one town, 60, 90, 6%. Like, it's just like when you think about that on a global scale, it's a lot. It is a lot. What kind of response does the church usually have in these instances? Like, no, this didn't happen. Is that the main thing? Um, okay. It's kind of, so because we're going so far back, there have been shifts in diocese and archdiocese. So like, the Diocese of Orange County used to be part of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, but then they broke off. And I think the same with Diocese of San Diego. Um, and so let's say the abuse happened in the 60s before the Diocese of Orange County split off. So it happened under the Archdiocese watch. We're filing a suit today, but it happened in Orange County, but it's was under the control of the archdiocese. We're suing a lot, we're suing today. Now there's archdiocese of LA and diocese of Orange County. Archdiocese of LA is like, the abuse happened in Orange County. That's not on us, that's on them. 
Diocese of Orange County is like, we didn't even exist when the abuse happened. So how could it be on us? That's on them. So there's a lot of like shifts to avoid um, liability. There's also the bankruptcy. There's also um, just ruthless attorneys on the other side. It's kind of like mergers, acquisitions, and splits. You can have a lot of obfuscation or confusion in the mix when things are made, changes are made, and oh, not us, or things are altered at some point, like avoidant energy. Yeah. Like, I'm not touching that. Right. And then on your end, you're pointing out facts of like, these things occurred, this was said. Is a lot of it what was said? Is there video? Or no, there wouldn't be video, but it's like more. It's personal accounts. And if this was a different situation or circumstance, or if it wasn't known how prevalent it is, this would crumble in court. Crumble. If I brought any other case with the lack of physical evidence like i was doing tenant landlord before if i just took my client's word for it and was like yeah when i lived there like 10 years ago there was mold and um lead and cockroaches and this and that and whatever do you have any photos no do you have any videos no uh is there anyone else that could attest to this no did you tell anybody else that you were dealing with this problem no Did you take it to the property management company? No. If I brought that to court, motion to dismiss immediately. But it's been revealed how prevalent the abuse is. It's been revealed how deep the cover-up goes all the way up to the Vatican sometimes. So they can't really, they're not really in a place to say it didn't happen. And again, they're settling with us. Like, we're not going to trial. If we had to go to trial, I'm and I haven't, like, been in this field, in this specific field long enough to see, like, what a trial like this looks like necessarily. But also remember, we are not suing to find the perpetrator guilty. We are suing to find the Catholic Church liable for negligence liable for negligent hiring and supervision, liable for the fact that you had control and the obligation to take care of this child and he was abused under your watch. So it is a bit different than proving innocence or guilt or proving that exactly what we say exactly what they say happens it's proving that a lack of supervision lack of accountability lack of care caused serious serious damage to this person's life there's some element of like there's an invisible but it must be visible because the numbers are so prevalent so it must be there so you're given a bit of accordance for that because if it was not there, maybe this happened like, I don't know, 50 years ago or something when there was less of that, then it would just, no, what are you bringing up? The reason why it's so invisible in the Catholic Church is because of this vow of celibacy. 
and the importance placed on the vow of celibacy. Um, and as a result, the necessity for secrecy, not just childhood sexual, like sexual misconduct towards children, even priests sleeping with nuns or priests attend like engaging in the services of a sex worker or any, any, any sexual, anything, shut your mouth. You didn't see anything. Nothing happened. It's all fine. Now we are human beings. We have a natural urge. We have a natural desire for sexual conduct and whether that be to recreate or for uh, recreation, enjoyment or whatever, there is this urge. Now, when you say, shut it down, never- Shut again, it down now, like Jim Carrey would say that. Never allowed, never acceptable. You're not having sex. Very binary. From this day until the day you die or you uh, like renounce your title as a priest, those urges don't stop just because of what you said. So. They take this vow of celibacy. Most of them, or a percentage of them, can't deal with that because it's not natural. It goes against your natural instincts. Then they turn to places and it needs to be kept secret because he's a priest and he took a vow of celibacy so nobody can know. That translates into abusing children. Because again, I've never sat and talked to a priest that did this. You can watch um, Deliver Us From Evil where a priest is very candid and very open. And it's crazy to hear him talk about how- What he did or just, that other people did? What he did, oh. his attraction to younger, he's like, if a woman walked by me and you asked me if I, was, if I was attracted to her, I would say no. If like a late adolescent, I would say like, no. If you go like a little younger, like, early teens, I'd say, okay. If you go like younger child, be like, okay. And if that child was wearing just underwear, be like, oh yes. Like he's very, and it's, it's crazy because it's crazy, you know? And so I've never talked to a priest, so I don't, I'm not in their mind, but like maybe sexual misconduct with a child, you're technically not breaking celibacy because you are not, having sex with another adult for the purpose of, you know, I don't like know. Bending the rule type thing. I guess, and it's like towards boys. So like, is it, is it all these priests are homosexual? I don't think so, but it's like, I think it's their sick twisted version of a loophole in terms of it's not with an adult and it's not with a female. So is it really sex? No. Right. Right. This thought pattern is something like that is happening if it's that prevalent and it's not just that one person. It's a lot of people going through that thought process. There's something specific about it if that's occurring that way repeatedly. So whenever I hear about something, I always think about it. it's happening right now somewhere, huh? So that's that's a crazy concept. I always think about that. If somebody tells me like 20 it's years It's happening ago, right now everywhere. The Catholic Church is all over the world. It's mm -hmm. not like an American problem or like a Italy. Like there are mission trips everywhere. And like the mission trips are, who are you going to tell? Where are you going to go? Like mm -hmm. when they send mission trips to Uganda or to Indonesia or to Asia or anything. And 
an abusive priest is sent, they are not just handpicked by God, they are God when they arrive. White savior, church run, like head of this church that just brought religion into my life, God. So if he wants to sleep with you, then he wants to sleep with you. If he wants to sleep with your daughter, then he's sleeping with your daughter. Like, hmm. what are you going to do? I guess. Even in our communities, the priests are looked up to so highly. And when, when reports come out, there's letters and letters, even in my priest file that I'm going over, letters of support. And like, we want these false accusations to be correct. And like, these people's lives were destroyed by this man. And you're writing letters being like, that false accusation, whatever. It's like, you don't know. You don't know. Is there some like correlation that priests are more likely to than the general population or once they become that now they are in that framework which leads to loophole type thinking is there any sort of like what leads to this versus the average person down the street that is maybe not six percent likely to yeah i think people have different theories on it it's like does the institution and the occupation of priesthood attract a certain people like knowing that they have access and they're thought of as up here and like and they're also maybe into the religion so they think that they can do no harm kind of thing like does it attract a certain type of people and that's why it's so much or does this vow of celibacy transform people into people who do certain things which maybe they normally wouldn't you know it's like nobody can say either which way because you don't know unless you did a test of like what are your sexual inclinations before someone went into the priesthood you know that'll be an odd test to bring up beforehand be like why are you asking this but there's something there. They also don't consider themselves homosexual, you know? It's like they'll still they'll they'll abuse a boy right before mass and get up there and read a uh, psalm like sure. segment mm -hmm. discussing the sin of homosexuality. You know, it's like and and that's like one of the biggest problems that my clients face just like the sheer hypocrisy that they saw. Like, not only are you doing something that would that you would define as wrong, like you're doing something that is morally wrong, and then you, who, what gives you the right to stand up and speak to all these people like you are any sort of positive or authoritative fit, you know what I mean? Like their concept of authority is shattered. Like their trust in people of higher positions is destroyed because they're like, this close to God does this, then goes up there and says that. And like, I'm the one left feeling guilt and shame and embarrassment. And he just like goes about his day, like nothing happened. There's a lot of logical 
mis mismeshing going on. Yeah. They wouldn't all pin down if you had like a logical framework you're bringing up. They wouldn't all connect very linearly. That's something. Yeah, if you see something not matching up with what is described, you get this feeling of like, wait, am I, is something being, am I being shaken up here? Because you want it to match. You want congruency and all the things. When we don't see con congruency, we break down a little bit. It's a strong point. What a scenario. And you work with that a good chunk of the people you work with, yeah. the majority. We have a few entertainment cases as well. Um, those are adult sexual abuse, but yeah, primarily churches, some schools, because Catholic schools, and entertainment. Hmm. Substantial category there. Now here comes one of the smoothest segues in the history of segues. Not really at all. Unrelated whatsoever to that category is the category of countries and regions of the world, okay? We are from regions of the world. I am from one. You are also from one. Tell me if you have any thoughts on any happenings of the Middle East in recent times. I have lots of thoughts. Okay. Because um, it's in the news. Number one, lately. Number one, repeatedly. Number one. Yeah. There may be conflict occurring. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on the conflict, sources of the conflict. Where are we at right now? Who's saying what? What kind of information can you bring forth related to that? Because boy, it has the attention of the whole world and it's substantial. I think uh, discussing the fact that we are both from countries, you being from Armenia, my family being from Israel. I'll just want to add in Armenia and Iran. Uh, Iran, born in uh, Iran, but Armenian from Iran. But it's technicality. Iranian Armenian? Yeah. Armenian, Persian Iranian. Armenian. Yeah, Persian Armenian. Or Iranian Armenian. Um, I never know which one to say. I think it's extremely unfortunate that there is true ethnic cleansing going on in Armenia. And no one's marching for that. No one's posting about that. No one's calling for and screaming in outrage that Azerbaijan is ethnically cleansing like they are screaming about Israel ethnically cleansing Gaza because for the first time in 5,000 years there are no Armenians in Artsakh that is the definition of an of ethnically cleansing the definition so how is it that there are no all these people that are, you know, I'm just, I'm pro peace. And like, when I say, when I see something that's wrong, I call it out and all this stuff. Where are they? Where are they? Cause I haven't heard a single one of them. I haven't heard, I haven't seen a single one of my friends who is not Armenian speak about the ethnic cleansing that's happening in Armenia. Not one, but that happened. And that has been happening. And it's just pushed. And I think it's super unfortunate for the Armenian people because I think it's it shows the weaponization of human suffering and of war crimes. Because meanwhile, while that's actually happening, Israel is evacuating an area that was the 
central point of the biggest attack on the Jewish people since the Holocaust and the point where 140 hostages are still being held, they are evacuating that in order to kill the people that just committed the most brutal attacks I've ever seen on video and get our hostages back and for the purpose of Gazan safety because if we didn't care about Gazan safety we would just come in there shoot everybody we saw go into the tunnels and wreak havoc and try to find our hostages with no remorse and no care in the world but we are evacuating them so that we can take care of the cancer that is Hamas and get our hostages back. That's not ethnic cleansing. It's war. It's necessary evacuations for safety. And to call a military response genocide and ethnic cleansing while at the same time an ethnic cleansing is happening i just think is the saddest part and ridiculous and just shows like the warped brainwashed minds that just virtue signal and follow where instagram takes them instead of what needs their attention Shout out to the virtue signaling on the internet, which has become popular the last 10 years. That's a category I like to talk about in itself. There is something for looking a certain way when not actually being that way, which has become very prevalent. Why has it become so prevalent? Because it, it's like you get a free, it's almost like a win-win in the short term. Like, look, I look good, but I didn't have to actually do the thing I want, but it's always short term. Virtue signaling is not like a long-term move because now you are like setting yourself up for reality kicking the door down in some form along with social media and its impact on all these things it wouldn't have had that impact like 30 years ago on a conflict the conflict would just happen now the conflict gets like amplified in certain directions based on people's views and like punchy really punchy now it's never been this punchy but also why why because i'm pretty sure people weren't beating up Russians all over the world when Russia invaded Ukraine two years ago. So the I understand the argument of social media is making it more in people's faces and apparent. And I remember seeing reports of Russians committing war crimes against Ukrainians. I remember them raping women and shooting the men and tying them up and just bulldozing and obliterating. Did people go out and attack either Ukrainians or Russians that were living all over the world? No. Maybe some Russians and Ukrainians, maybe they got into fights with each other, but for the most part, no. Whereas on the other side of it, Israel was attacked. Israel had 1,400 slaughtered, 3,000 injured, over 240 taken hostage, women raped, kids beheaded people burned alive Hamas did that to Israel nobody went out and beat up anybody that was 
belonging to Hamas. The opposite. Israel responded military and they started beating up not Israelis, Jews, Jewish people. Some of those Jewish people, you don't even know if they support Israel. You don't even know if they've been to Israel. But they're Jewish. Why is that? That's also the hardest part to see because it's like every other country is a country is a country. But because Israel is a Jewish country, now the Jews of the world are done, canceled. You you deserve to be beat, get beaten up on your way back from temple solely for being Jewish. You don't know if that man lost his son in the attack. You don't know if he protests against Israel. You don't know if he doesn't want Israel to be a Jewish, you know what I mean? Like, you don't know what he believes. You just know that he's Jewish. You don't know that he has any connection to Israel. Why is that? So it's like, yeah, you can blame it on social media, but social media was the same in 2021 when Putin invaded Ukraine. And this shit wasn't happening. They weren't storming airplane, like airports and standing on wings of airplanes because they got reports that there were Jews in that plane, which happened in Russia. Like, you know? It's like a juxtaposition comparison point. Right. What do you think is the cause of such differential? Anti-Semitism. Huh. It's like tale as old as time. It's like the only, the only explanation that I have that Harvard and Yale and Stanford and Cornell and David and UC professors tweeted the things that they tweeted on October 7th saying settler, like saying civilians are civilians, like you can't kill civilians and people like a professor responding saying settlers are not civilians. And another professor, I think from Cornell saying what Hamas just did to Israel was exhilarating and exciting. Like, how detached and how dehumanized are the Israelis and the Jewish people in your eyes for you to see that as anything but horrible and atrocious and terror? How? You know, like, my only explanation is this, like, deep-seated anti-Semitism that dates, like, in the Torah it says, like, God says to us, as whether you're religious or not religious, God says, like, you will be a great nation, but you will be a tiny nation. You will always be hated. Like, that is said. Yeah. Now, some people look at that to be like, God hates you. We look at that as we're the chosen people. Islam says that. Christianity says that. Like, you talk to someone that's super, super Christian, most of the time they love Israel because they believe that like, that's where Jesus walked and the Jews are the chosen people. You talk to a prophet in Islam, or not a prophet, like a scholar, an Islamic scholar. And it says, the children of Israel. Like, these are the chosen people. Israel is theirs. So somewhere along the way, everything got like... And it's a faith, shared faith kind of thing. Everything got distorted. And so it says that we are the chosen people. We're just living our lives like... We didn't go out and declare wars. And I'm talking history. Like, we didn't conquer lands. We didn't go out on pogroms and 
crusades. We just kicked it. How is it that we are attacked every generation since the beginning of time, since the beginning of like organized religion? Why? For what? You know, like why aren't the Persians attacked for the amount of people that they killed during the creation of the Persian Empire? Not that I'm advocating for that, but during the Islam conquest, they killed 270 million people by the sword, by the sword. 270 million. But we're the most hated. Why? What have we done to the world? What have we done? Because we control the media? Clearly not, because the media is against us. Because we control the bank? Sorry, the only jobs that our Jewish mothers would like us to have are bankers, lawyers, doctors. Again, that's not on us. And Jews are just used to getting everything taken away from them that they have to start all over again. So they're resourceful and they're smart and they put their heads down. IQ of Jewish people, like they did a study, I think it was probably maybe at Harvard, but I don't want to give that to them. They did a study and um, the- She is not a fan of Harvard now. Jewish population's IQ tends to be higher. And that's because historically the Jewish people um, valued brains over brawn. So when a man wanted to come marry his daughter, it didn't matter to him that he was strong. He wanted to know that he was a scholar, whereas most other normal people, because this is like hunting and fighting and Definitely. back in the day, you want someone big, you want someone to protect you, you want someone strong. Why would you pick a skinnier guy with a bigger head, you know? But that's what we've done. Medical advancements, technological advancements, humanitarian, agriculture, everything. We turned a desert into a garden. And we'll share it with everybody. So what's the issue here? What's the problem? You know, like why? And again, I'm not talking about Israel. I'm talking about the Jewish people. Why? Why are you attacking Jews in the street? Why is that necessary? What does that do for your cause? And it's not just one, not just two, not just three. I had a man in, my, in the town that I grew up in was killed at a protest. And the news said man died at Raleigh. How's that fair? How's that fair? Book title, how is that fair, question mark. Also, why, question mark. <laughs> why, question mark, how is that fair, question mark. So there's at least a little bit of emotion connected to this. There's a lot. Mm. There's a lot. My cousin was at that festival uh. that got attacked. He survived, but that's how I found out. Updates from him to his mom, his mom to my mom, my mom to us. Like, something's wrong. This is like worse than, like, because they're used to missiles. Like, there are terrorists everywhere. They're running, they're shooting, there's dead bodies. Like, this is like play by play. And then my cousin's phone died for like five, six hours. So nobody knew what happened until he was picked up by the police. And we're like, wow, you're so lucky. And then in the coming days, the carnage and the amount of hostages they took were like, wow, you were so lucky. Like, everybody I know knows someone who was either killed, captured, missing, or experienced the massacre. 
everyone I know knows someone who is now in the military, like back, even people that were born and raised here. It's not just a talking point for us. It's not just a political thing. It's so personal. And what makes it so personal is how against us defending ourselves the world seems to be. Because if this happened anywhere else, show me a country that would tell them to be like exercise restraint. As horrible as 9-11 was, 3,000 people died. That was horrible. When you boil it down, it was three bombs. No massacre in the streets. No direct massacre. No filmed massacre. No raping of women. No hostages. And we went into the Middle East for 20 years. 20. And destroyed them. And you as an American or even an American politician think that you have the right to tell us to exercise restraint. We are exercising restraint. We're exercising as much restraint as we can, for sure. But that was like the first thing. You know what I mean? It's not like they saw what we were doing and they were like, this is extreme. It's like, hey, just making sure like you guys go in there like super take it easy on them how if you had a megaphone to the whole planet what would you say on behalf of the jewish people like if you were speaking as the jewish people to the planet like what are things you would want to tell them like hey this 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 about the current moment is there anything you'd say like how they would, how they could think of you or, I don't know, is there something you'd say to like make a point? When we learn about wars in school, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. So when we learn about it, we learn that there were, right, there was right and wrong. There was good and bad. The best example of that is the Holocaust. Nazi Germans thought that they were on the right side. Now we learn, I mean, people are switching the fabric of reality and history, but we learn that being a Nazi was bad, being on that side was bad. And so when we look at this 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, it's gonna be clear the right side and the wrong side. And if it's not, that just is a testament to anti-Semitism. Not because everything that Israel does is correct or everything that Jewish people does is correct, but how can you sit there and tell me that any massacre of any people where there was rape, torture, broadcasted murders on Facebook Live, torturing kids in front of their parents, torturing parents in front of their kids, cutting open the stomach of pregnant women and stabbing their unborn fetus. In what world is any part of that justified? So if we're still talking about what's right and wrong later, I've like lost 
faith in humanity. But like megaphone to the world, hopefully we'll figure it out by then. And hopefully you were on the side that was right and accurate and true and cared about the world as a whole because Hamas doesn't give a fuck about the world. They want to take it over and replace every law with Sharia law. They're very clear about that. So I don't understand what Americans don't understand. There's videos of them everywhere replacing the American flag with the Palestinian flag. Make that make sense. You're in America. Long live America, no? You know what I mean? Shout outs to America. Shout outs to America. The great nation. Right. So how do you feel about Armenia? Armenia has my name in it. Okay. I take things way funny, but it has my name in it because I'm Armin. But how do I feel about it as my background? Uh, I would summarize it as my fellow people appear to get squished every so often. It's not good. I'm trying to represent a different form of that in strength as the pillar of the planet, which is me. But my general feeling is that they got the not winning end of a lot of sticks with other countries like Turkey and whoever it might be. And so that's not good to have in the background because it's almost like pointing at that moment of the past. Like, hey, remember when you lost that? You lost then you lost there. So it's not like an energizing reminder unless you're built tough like myself, for example. I'm like, ha ha, no problem, resilience. But generally, I don't think it's a self-esteem booster from my fellow people. So I think it does weaken the general pathos of Armenians around the planet, though some will be energized in response. So I don't like that end, but it is fine in my response is me. Obviously it's not fun when your people are like, as your imagery showcased. Ethnically cleansed. Adjusted over there, relocated if you will. And there, somebody was saying this recently that, you know, there's a border. Oh, that person is different. It makes me think of a lot of things about people in uh, separating points of that person on the other side of the thing. And you're a person. But on this end, because of the dynamics, your crew got demise. But they're okay for now or maybe long into the future. I don't know. But human, I don't think humans really picked. I want to be on the demise end. Or I want to do terrible things. I generally have an optimistic view of people, but it's countered by some of the news happenings. It's somewhat in the clouds more than in reality, but that's where my head goes at and my thoughts about the Armenian people. Do you relate with any of my thoughts on the Armenian people and their uh, how they would feel as a community based on what has happened? Yeah, I think um, super shitty to be persecuted and constantly persecuted or attacked. But like resilience is the most important part. Like Jews were slaves in Egypt and now the Egyptian empire as it was no longer exists. Jews were persecuted in Rome. Roman Empire collapsed. So it's like, we were here before you, we'll be here after you. 
And the same goes for Armenians in Artsakh. Like, they are... They belong there. And I believe that they will get back there. I hope. If that's not impactful, I don't know what is. I have 940 other topics, but we're leaving that for next time because you always have to put some time constraint on things hilariously, which is a funny thing in this life. It's not an Armin thing, but Corinne, regarding this discussion, before I close out, is there any certain topic that comes to your mind that you want to bring up from host to guest? Um, and if not, just, that's okay too. Just be nice to people. Be nice, understand where people are coming from, engage in intellectual and educated conversations and don't don't diminish other people for the sake of advancing a point, especially if you're not connected to that point. Strong any point there, Corinne? Glad to have you on the program. Thanks. And we are out.